How's it going everyone? Hope we're all keeping safe and well during the current global lockdown as it continues with, in all honesty, no end in sight. Uh, whether you're working from home, abiding by guidelines, or of course if you're a key worker, especially those at the NHS working in the hospitals, I express nothing but gratitude and I'm wishing you and your loved ones the best of health. Um, got a great interview for you here in the meantime. Whether you're watching or listening to this through the Carlisle podcast, which is my podcast, or Everton Newsfeed on one of their social channels, uh, earlier on I had the chance to sit down and chat with the head performance specialist for the US men's national team, Steve Tastian. Now, that'll be a familiar name for most Evertonians, but for those that don't know, just a background on Steve. He was originally the head of strength and conditioning and rehabilitation for Columbus Crew from 2007 to 2009 before moving to Europe to join David Moises Everton as the head of sports science where he stayed for five seasons. He then rejoined Columbus Crew as the head performance, high performance director sorry, from 14 to 18 before in early 19 taking up his current responsibilities with the US men's national team, which I'm sure was an immensely proud moment for Steve. Um, in terms of the interviews that I've done, it's certainly up there with my favourites as me and Steve have most definitely some overlapping interests in elite human performance in sport. And Steve goes into fantastic detail, uh, very intelligent uh, and articulate guy. Um, about his early days in football, um, making waves as a sports scientist and all the, the multifaceted, multifaceted details of you know, nutrition, strength and conditioning uh, and whatnot and how that evolved in America uh, during his time there. He also goes into detail about his move to Europe, uh, his thoughts and feelings at that time and how a group of players at Everton made him feel welcome. Uh, some fantastic stories and tales there. Um, also some interesting insight to when Roberto Martinez came in. Obviously, Steve remained at the club uh, during the staff turnover. Um, and many of my age would argue that's the, the best Everton side that we've seen. Uh, so he shed some really interesting uh, light as to what was going on at the club during that time. Um, just to round off the interview, he spoke of the US's ambitions as they now have a six-year window before North American nations host the 2016, 2026 sorry, FIFA World Cup, um, which is, as I say, it's just really fascinating to hear from working behind the scenes, his ambitions uh, and what's it, what he hopes to achieve. Um, so again, I'd like to thank Steve for his time and hopefully you enjoy the interview just as much as I did. Steve, firstly, um, I suppose it's just courteous to ask, how are you holding up during the whole coronavirus pandemic and how, if all, if at all, has it impacted your workload and responsibility with the US men's national team? First, Max, thanks for having me on, man. This is great. Uh, anytime I get a chance to 
reconnect to a time that was really special in my career, I, I always take advantage of it. So I appreciate the time you've given me to pop on here. And yeah, I mean, it's, uh, we're, we're in a blessed position, you know, we're healthy, we're, we're happy and, uh, and we're safe here in, in Columbus. It's been uh, a very unique situation that all of us have been a part of here. Uh, I'm, and I'm sure I'm, I'm speaking to a few people who probably are fortunate like I am and, and maybe some who are not. And so my heart goes out to those who aren't as fortunate, who are dealing with hardships. And, uh, and the, the only thing we can, we can pray for is that they can see the hope they can see the end of the, the light at the end of the tunnel and that, uh, that everybody's pulling for them. But we, we've, we've been in a good position here and, uh, and thankfully everybody's healthy and safe in this household. So that, that's been a blessing. And then, you know, as far as the, the way it's affected the work, it, you know, it's interesting that uh, it, trying to step away from it for a moment and just take a view of it from 10,000 feet, you know, it really is something super unique that I don't think we'll, we'll see again for quite some time, hopefully. But uh, when we look back on it, we're going to understand that we were part of something very, very special in that it, it changed the world, not just soccer itself, but that, you know, it changed the whole landscape of, of the way we operate day to day as a human race, which is <clears throat> something that, um, you know, my kids will look back on and be able to say that they were a, a part of this. But the, the interesting part about, about club versus international, you know, coaching is the, the process obviously changed but some a lot of it is very very similar you know we don't get a lot of contact with the players anyway and in between camps we're very much a a process driven uh environment you know we're constantly reevaluating what we're doing how we do it um we have more time than in the club setting to evaluate who the opponent is and how we're going to play against the opponent and a lot of the, the period between camps is very much spent idle like this, you know, looking at process, planning, strategizing, communicating, whether it be with clubs, whether it be with players, whether it be with coaches, we spend a lot of time on the phone connecting, staying connected and, and establishing relationships and strengthening relationships. And really during this period, we've just had the opportunity to do that uh, you know, on, on another level. We, mm -hmm. we've, uh, we've got time. We, and during that time, uh, you you start to uh, do you start to stay within a rhythm of the things that have kept you successful up to this point. But then you also have the opportunity to take on projects that you know you normally had to put uh, on the back burner. And th and at this point, that's what's been that's what we've been able to do as a department. We've been able to really go through what we do with a fine tooth comb. How do we travel? When do we travel? When are the best times to to move from one city to the next when you're dealing with an international window where you're playing <clears throat> Friday and then Tuesday or, uh, you know, Friday, Wednesday, Thursday, Monday, whatever it might be. But you start to paint these scenarios and you start to look at, this is how we handled it in this one window. How did we like it? And we pro, you know, we, 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 we write down our pros and cons and then we start to fine tune what that process is. And then we go to our manager and we just say, listen, in these scenarios, this is our, this is our gold standard. This is the way we should do it. And that's not just with travel, but it's also with how we acclimate the players to camp when they arrive on the first day of camp. How do we get them ready as quickly as possible to train Monday when, yeah. they, when these guys have had such a different fixture schedule and have traveled from different areas of the world? And then 
you know, how do we do food? How do we do everything? Uh, you, we have the time now to actually evaluate those things. What types of information do we provide for the clubs? What type of information do we want from the clubs? You refine it all, and that's what this time has given us. But uh, it definitely hasn't impacted us as much as it's impacted club the club setting. You know, the club setting has been rocked, and that's been a very uh, interesting process to watch from afar and to be a part of as kind of a sounding board more than anything else as we fulfill our role in this position as more of a support mechanism for the players supporting the clubs, uh, you know, supporting the individual needs. Uh, but they've, you know, they're dealing with something unprecedented. So it's, uh, it's been much different in that setting than ours, but you know, we've definitely been affected. We don't get a lot of time with our feet on the grass anyway. And now it's, uh, you know, you miss one or two camps, you could be talking about three quarters of a year where mm. as a performance coach in, in this setting, you don't get to, you don't get to coach at all. Uh, and that's what we're looking at now. And if things go the way they are and who knows what will happen with the September window, you've got leagues that will probably be starting their, their 2020, 21 season somewhere around the beginning of September, you know, will FIFA and the major leagues around the world agree to allow that September window to take place? Will every country in the world be clear of this pandemic? Uh, to where you know we'll actually have the opportunity to travel to these places when the September window opens up. So there's a lot of things that are up in the air. It's uh, very interesting to see how this global community is going to have to actually meet a lot of standards before we start playing football again. Definitely, and I suppose it, it's fantastic in a sense that you have the luxury of time now to do such experiments with your, your responsibilities. And mm-hmm. I just I just thought I'd ask before moving on to yourself and your own story, given your wealth of experience within elite human performance, as it were, what recommendations would you have to people during this sort of unprecedented time? I've heard uh, the likes of vitamin C and zinc is, is great for strengthening the immune system. So I'd just um, like to inquire from yourself, what sorts of information have you got? You know, it's <clears throat> some of the things that are out there are very, very inconsistent. And I think with our efforts to want to help, with our efforts to want to rid ourselves of this particular condition as quickly as possible, a lot of times we're grasping at the first thing that we hear through the grapevine and we start to drive towards it as if it was, you know, scientific fact that we can hang our hat on. And we got to be very, very careful about that. At, at the moment, what we know is what you've heard, that you have to socially distance, that you have to make sure you're in a, in a mindset of cleaning and washing and staying sterile as you navigate your way uh, through life at the moment. And that's what we know works. We know staying distant from other people and, and washing hands and cleaning your environment is, are the keys. You know, there's lots of um, you know, experimental ideas out there at the moment that we think might be something that's going to help accelerate the process. But, you know, the only thing we know for sure that we can, that we can hang our hat on is that if we keep ourselves isolated and, and wait this thing out in our own environments where we know we're safe, then, you know, we'll, we'll beat it. But unfortunately I don't have anything new for you. You know, there's, mm. there's talk about zinc and vitamin C heard that, as well, but there's just as many opportunities in other countries that we've seen that it hasn't worked. So you know, the, you know, we're hearing vitamin D, things of this nature. Well, it's all fine, but those are not things that we know for a fact are going to help in any way, shape, or form. 
uh, we need evidence. You know, we need science. And the only thing we know right now is if we distance ourselves and we continue to wash and keep ourselves sterile, then, you know, we, we can actually, we can navigate through this period without getting sick. And that, that's the most important part. Okay. But um, it, I imagine similar for me, it's been tough years. This has took away two of my favorite things. One being football, <laughs> one being football, the other being going to the gym. Yeah, um, there you go. There you go. I know it, it, it has been hard, but I was going to say it going to you and your story is um, dealing with, you know, elite human performance and sports science. Um, I imagine when you were coming through, um, obviously with um, America not being quite acclimatized to football or soccer as it were, as say basketball, baseball, and the more traditional American sports. Um, what were the uh, traditional attitudes and school of thought towards uh, sports science uh, and that realm uh, as you were coming up? In, in the United States or when I got to England? In the United States. Yeah, it's, it was, you know, there was a big, there was a big boom in strength and conditioning that came out of, you know, came out of the period decades before me with Boyd Epley at the University of Nebraska and, and just the, the explosion of success that that program had after he had implemented this, um, you know, this concept <clears throat> that called strength and conditioning. And he, you know, he had a very clear picture and idea of what he wanted to do. And he was in an environment with a coach that was looking for an edge and, and that molded the, the process as things started to unfold in the United States. Um, that part of what we did had, you know, that reputation preceded me uh, as you started to navigate through, uh, through different sports in the United States. It even, you know, kind of carried me into a position of strength in England as well, just because we had started to develop a relationship for very, being very progressive in the way we approach strength and conditioning in the United States. Sports science is a little something different because strength and conditioning is, is a small piece of, of sports science. You know, that when I started in Columbus the first time around, I was one of only three fitness coaches in the entire league. Uh, there was a few you know, spatterings of part-time guys, but there was only three full-time fitness coaches in MLS. <clears throat> by the time that, uh, you know, by the time we won MLS Cup in 2008, there's three of us, that was it. And that process of the sport in the United States, understanding the importance of sports science was very young. It was juvenile at the time. And there was very little resources being put towards it. I think in other sports, <clears throat> it had already started to become... Excuse me. It had already be, started to become a little bit more prominent, but really, it was the it was this um, somewhat uh, evolving process taking place overseas that really got the United States to look at sports science as a whole. Strength and conditioning was well accepted, but this idea of understanding data, this idea of studying you know training load and how that impacts wins and losses. Those things hadn't hadn't really accelerated yet. Um, you know, we were we were also at the infancy of technology at the time. You know, when mm -hmm. I started as a fitness coach and, and sports scientist, you know, GPS did not exist. Heart rate monitoring was just starting to become something very very popular, and that was the beginnings of what we would call you know modern day sports science. What were we collecting? Were we really you know, did, it started with these subjective reports of trying to 
to collect anything that we could create as a metric, you know, even if it was just the players telling us how they felt, how they slept, how they ate, all these things were, you know, in their infancy in the United States. And I think the, the, the platform that I was provided in Columbus was a clean slate. So at least it allowed me to try anything I wanted that existed that I could think of. And that did give me the opportunity to start to think about how do I pull data from this side of my brain and data from this side of my brain and bring it all together in a way that tells me something new about how to prepare the players or how they're tolerating, uh, you know, the, this period within, within, uh, you know, the, the, the yearly schedule, whatever it might've been, those things started to stack on top of themselves. And then I'd create, I'd think of a new idea. I'd think of something else I wanted to try. And luckily I was in an environment with a head coach that really did allow me to do that. So within the, you know, the environment in the United States, uh, I would say only a small piece of, of sports science was popular. You know, the strength and conditioning piece, the rest of it was, was, was very young. And it's not until I got to, to England and now all of a sudden I had more resources and the club had already experimented with this thing called GPS. No one really ha- had grabbed a hold of it mm-hmm. and, and implemented it and really taken the time to commit to it. But we had the system at the club. And when I came, it was, you know, an, it was an opening for me. And I'm super intrigued by new things and ideas of how to study the process of conditioning. And so I took that part of the role on, on my plate. And, and that's really where I started to, you know, think of new ways of implementing, you know, a set of metrics that were, that opened up the world of, you know, lo- load monitoring within, within our industry. And, th- and that's kind of how the progression took place. But it wasn't until England and Europe started to really take off that the United States started to really pay attention to sports science. You know, mm-hmm. again, strength and conditioning was something that had existed from the 60s, 70s, as we came out of this, you know, boom from the Soviet Union having such success in Olympic, in Olympic, um, you know, environments with the way they approached strength and conditioning. But as it came to sports science and understanding the total study of, of the variables that affect performance, uh, it, it was, it somewhat worked in the reverse direction. You know, you, you saw basketball clubs and football clubs hiring European sports scientists uh, because they wanted to implement some some new ideas that that weren't you know weren't prevalent in the United States at the time. So it took it took a while, but it wasn't it wasn't very uh, there wasn't a lot going on from a sports science perspective in the United States as I was working my way up through you know those beginning periods of my career. Interesting. It it seemed like you had a certain creative license at Columbus. It seems and. We'll, mm-hmm. touch, we'll touch on your move to, to Europe in a second. But was the, as you say, with, with sports science, it, it encompasses so many different niches and, you know, nutrition, strength and conditioning. Was that niche of within football, with it being within football, was that always the ambition? I mean, that's the sport I played um, okay. as I grew up. So it was definitely, a, I directed a lot of my attention towards, towards football for sure. There was a period in my career where I had my own facility in the private sector and we trained athletes from all sports within that facility. But, you know, I gravitated towards soccer naturally just because of, of the, my own participation in the sport uh, coming up through younger years and into college. But the, the, 
that was the that was more of the reason why it became such a focal point of my career. Okay, makes sense. How, how did yeah. you how did you adapt to how how old were you? Sorry, in your first spell with Columbus. So I started at the beginning of two thousand seven, which uh, would have made me thirty one. So it was it was right around that time thirty thirty one right when okay. I started. Yeah. How did you how did you adapt to working within the professional? football environment because I suppose as you say it makes sense that you've got that experience for your playing days but as you say with so many different facets to sort of implement as part of your role how did you adapt to the environment uh, mainly for making mistakes Max <laughs> you, you, you really can't listen I, I think you one you you try to pull from mentors that are that hopefully you've uh, magnetically attached yourself to as you progress through <clears throat> through any career, whether you're a strength and conditioning coach or <clears throat> you're a financial advisor. I think you gravitate towards people that can teach you something and then you're hoping that you were listening uh, and you were listening closely as you as you kind of mature through through the years. Uh, I had that opportunity to have some good people that taught me some good stuff, but you don't really get to figure out your own um, rights and wrongs until you're in it on your own. You know, I would say that the, the environment I was in the first time around in Columbus was, um, looking back on it, I understand how important it was because Ziggy Schmidt was my head coach. Um, and you know, God rest his soul. He was an amazing human being, but I also realize now how much he protected me and shielded me from certain aspects of the role um, and then continued to open open the doors for me to to be exposed to those things slowly but surely as he knew I could handle them and th- and that was that was something that uh, not a lot of people get when and it was my first you know head of professional role you know it was the first time I was wasn't the assistant anymore. It was my program. It was me and I sank or swim, but he was, he was great. You know, and, and I think the, uh, the, the way in which um, the maturation process accelerated for me in my time with him was directly related to the way he, the way he groomed me during that period. But what I'd say is, you know, you, you have to, you have to go through those periods of conflict. Uh, you have to um, take really good notes, pay attention to what worked and what didn't, and then just be smart enough to not make the same mistake twice. If you end up, and if you were wrong, and I believe in this wholeheartedly, you know, taking ownership is really, really important, Max. I think the, the one thing early on that affects a lot of coaches is it's very difficult to, to, to not let your ego get in the way. You know, you want to be right. It's such a pressured situation and everybody's trying to win. And, and the process of getting to that place creates tension and tension can explode. And that happens. But I think it's, it's the reasons for the explosions that, that really become the most important. And I think if, you're on one end fighting for something so strongly, but not realizing that the the whole motivation for on your side has to do with being right or has to do with getting your way. 
you know, it can, it can significantly affect your success as a coach. And, and early on, that was definitely a part of it. Martin Bouchette, who's the high performance director at PSG is currently working on, on a, you know, on, on a piece that he's going to, that he's going to release. I don't know when, just on this exact topic of ego and performance coaching. And it affects a lot of us. And especially when we're young. And in this particular case, I'd say that was probably the, the biggest maturation process was being a little bit more present, a little bit more mindful, thoughtful, understanding circumstance comes good or bad that ego can't have any influence on how you handle those situations, good or bad. And slowly but surely, uh, you know, it never stops. You know, I'm maturing now and you continue to, to be faced with new situations. Um, you're hoping that you've, that most of those situations are something that you've had before and you can, uh, you can navigate your way through successfully. But the truth is, uh, you know, you're going to be faced with something new your whole life, you know, enter the coronavirus, right? You know, you can't be prepared for something like that. Uh, but all you can do is learn while you're going through it and then be prepared for, hopefully, if it never, we don't ever want it to happen again, but if it does, we'll obviously be more prepared. And I think that was part of the process in Columbus the first time around was almost everything was new and you're being exposed to it constantly. Um, and that really allows you to, to, to mold your way through your, your career. And as you, you know, approach mastery and you need to be exposed to these, to these, uh, stressors that allow you to become better. And then as you continue through your career, now you're looking, now you're looking back on past experience and it's helping you handle the things that are in front of you. So I, I would say that was probably the biggest process for me was just maturing as a coach and understanding how to deal with success and failure in a more mature way. Very wise words. And I, I find it particularly interesting as um you know, had it not been for this coronavirus outbreak, I was meant to be spending my summer with the with the USL club and going to several spots over North America. So, it's, oh, uh, really, it's interesting to to hear that from yourself in terms of you know just buying your time and, and learning from experiences. Yeah, um, and I'm sure for yourself and your individual path, there were no bigger opportunities than moving to Europe. Now, you take me back to that headspace of obviously you're at Columbus Crew. Uh, and the opportunity comes calling to work with a Premier League club um, under the management of David Moyes, who had built a mm -hmm. phenomenal reputation while mm -hmm. in charge of Everton Football Club. Um, just what were your thoughts and feelings uh, ahead of moving to Europe? And um, as you say now, looking back on it, you, um, what were your major takeaways? Um, were there any sort of major paradigm shifts in your school of thought? Yeah, the, it was a very unique, uh, somewhat unexpected opportunity. <clears throat> we, had, we had spent two preseasons in a row with Columbus Crew in England. And on both occasions, we had spent, some, we had sent, spent a period of time at, at Finch Farm. The first year we came to Finch Farm because we, we played a friendly uh, against the reserves here. And it was a decent group of, of players that we played against. And I know that... Um, Lee Carsley was in that game and, and Victor Anachibi was in that game. And so it was an interesting side. It was a mixed side. I think they had just come home from, from a Europa League match and there was a group of guys that needed, needed a, a, a match. And uh, it, the timing was perfect. 
and we got a chance to spend the day. And that was my first time to meet most of the staff from the performance and medical side. And then the following year, when we came out, we actually set up camp there for a week and we trained there for a week. We played, we played a couple of games there and that process um, the second time around gave me again, another exposure to the staff and we were able to, to get to know each other just a little bit better uh, that second time around. And previous to me coming across, the, David Boyce had entered into a contract with an American company called Athletes Performance to provide all the strength and conditioning for, um, for the club. And the, the first practitioner from Athletes Performance to take the role, to take the contract, was, uh, you know, for one reason or another, was, wasn't going to be coming back. And it was right at that period in transition uh, that we were spending our second preseason there. And the, uh, the strength and conditioning coach with the German national team was fulfilling the role temporarily until it was filled permanently. And Shad Forsyth, who is now at Arsenal, was filling in at the time. And he, and he just said, listen, you know, the position's open. And we, we would like to fill it for sure. And, you know, would you be interested in it? At the time, I just signed a contract to return to Columbus. And in my contract, it said I couldn't actually entertain anything from abroad until the middle of May. And, and so I told, I told Shad that. And I said, listen, I, I would jump at it tomorrow, but this is where I'm at. And come May 15th, I got, a, I got an email from Shad saying, you know, it's still open. Are you interested? So then it became very real that it was an opportunity. but. You know, on paper, Max, I was not the leading candidate. I'm fine with admitting that. I think the the only things I had going for me were, one, David Moyes wanted an American strength and conditioning coach. He wanted an American sports scientist. It fit well to bring in new ideas and mix well with Dave Billows, who had already been there. And that's just what he wanted. And I, by the luck of the draw, I was an American. So that's the first thing that was going my way. Mm -hmm. Second, it's that I was a physical therapist, and there's not a lot of strength and conditioning coaches that that hold both credentials. And I I think on paper I probably separated myself because I was an established fitness coach, strength and conditioning coach, but I was also a physio. So in that sense, I think there was some separation. But I didn't have any Premier League experience. There were other candidates that did, but uh, you know, Shad offered up his recommendation. He put my CV right next to the others. And, you know, the manager picked me. So in the end, there's, uh, there was a, the right, it was the right time, the right moment, and uh, the right people recommending me. And then you, you just have these circumstances of, um, and I'm fine with admitting that I think it's a bit of luck. You know, you get to a position where the only thing you can control there is your reputation. Mm -hmm. So luck doesn't do anything for you if you don't have the, the reputation to give yourself the opportunity. And uh, at that point, the phone calls that were made, um, you know, supported the fact that, you know, I would work hard and that I, I had a reputation of, of uh, you know, being able to be successful in that environment. And, uh, you know, we're grateful for the opportunity and we're grateful for the fact that, uh, that, they, that they chose me. So, you know, it's not something I take for granted for sure. But, and then it was, and then it was the process of, um, you know, of, transitioning as quickly as possible. It did happen pretty fast. The The club was going to be in the United States for a portion of the preseason. Yeah, we had a couple and, of preseasons in the States, didn't we? Mm, yeah, and at the time, the, the club was already in Seattle. 
and so we uh we quickly transitioned um to uh you know in my head i had to wrap my head around what this meant and in in the end you just pack a bag and you go and so i was in i ended up in seattle you know maybe four or five days later and at that point you just start trying to acclimate as quickly as possible it's a bit of a whirlwind and the manager was good you know he knew it would be a, a transition process for me I, I wasn't immediately asked to be um, hands-on with a ton of stuff that first week I just tried to meet as many people as I could mm -hmm. make relationships understand the players get as close to the people I'd be working with as possible and then just you know every day was a new adventure and you just let it evolve as it goes and then over time you know the paradigm shift it was dramatic Max I mean in, in that environment you you have more resources uh, financially. You have more resources and opportunity from a technology standpoint. Um, and then you just have this whole new culture that operates so much differently than the American culture that you have to acclimate to. Um, and, and it really did change my world, both professionally and socially. You know, there's a lot of things that I hold dear now in terms of how I feel human interaction should take place, the way I feel uh, social structure should take place, the way I feel the sport should be handled, anything from professional to social change dramatically because of my time in England. Really interesting. And I know you said there's a, certainly a bolster in terms of the, uh, the revenue that's available to you and what, you, what you're dealing with, but Moyes had a, a shrewd reputation for player recruitment on such a slim budget. I was curious as to whether when it comes to Moyes and the targets that he was looking at, I know the man has immense football knowledge and um, spoke to him several times myself, but did you ever collaborate with Moyes in terms of identifying players and you think, oh, he may be a bit too injury prone for the group or anything along, along that sort? No, I think that was always, I think that was always dealt with at the club more with a relationship on the medical side. Uh, you know, I was never a part of player recruitment. The only times I was, there was a couple of MLS players that the, that the manager was looking at early on when I came. And because they were on that Columbus crew team that I came from, he asked me about them as people, as players, but never in terms of, uh, you know, part of the final decision on, on the recruiting process. So I was distant from that. But what would happen from a, from a medical standpoint is, uh, you know, the heads of, heads of medical were more involved in that. They would collect the information from the previous clubs and, and they would probably be more uh, in a position within the club structure to be the guy to, to really bring sort of the medical piece uh, to that decision-making process. That didn't trickle down to me. Okay, so um, I'm sure you can shed some light on this. So let me ask you, you often hear from, you know, outsiders, those that don't live in England or, or and those from the football industry as a whole, that the Premier League is the most intense league and it's often bandied as the, the best league in league football. Um, as a sports scientist, head of performance, um, do, do you agree with that statement? There's aspects of it that I definitely agree with. You know, the, the one thing I found is I've now, be, I've now been collecting data on you know, the physical load of games across two continents now for you know almost 20 years and what i'd say is you know f footballers cover a lot of distance mm -hmm. um so it, it's i don't think that's where 
the nuance of this lies. Um, you know, cause I have, I've had teams in Columbus that covered more distance per 90 minutes than any of our teams at Everton. But that doesn't mean that I think MLS soccer is more intense than Premier League soccer. I don't, I don't think that. I think there is a frantic, there's a frantic pace to Premier League soccer. There is an intensity to it because of the, because every game has a different meaning to it, attached to it. You know, you've got this intense environment fueled by a fan support that we don't have in the United States. Mm-hmm. That, that's one piece. You sit in a stadium and you can hear it, you can feel it, and no matter what, it's going to produce a different type of uh, intensity and focus and determination. Uh, you know, you can just soak it in when you're there. Uh, there are very few environments in the United States and MLS that are like that. They're, they're growing. There's definitely more. I've been in some awesome environments in MLS, but it's not widespread. But in the Premier League, you know, the starting point is there's this, there's this buzz and this tension that you get from what's happening in the stands. That's very, very unique. The second thing I'd say is each game means so much to a point where we can't reproduce it in MLS because we don't have promotion and relegation. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, this, there's a different type of tension because each game means something different. And that brings another level of intensity. On top of it, you know, we are not at the point in MLS where we've got the widespread quality that you see in the Premier League in England. And in order to defend quality, you need intensity. And you need this level of uh, collective sharpness. You need this... Uh, football intuition and uh, everything about how you approach even one-on-one situations or team-based defending or team-based situations requires this level of attention because the individual quality can beat you at any moment. So everything becomes more focused and concentrated. That's what I think separates, um, you know, the Premier League from MLS. Um, physically, I've seen guys run in MLS. I, I've seen teams that cover an incredible distance. Um, a lot of a lot of times, teams will be compared to those Jurgen Klopp Dortmund teams that he had, which you know there's statistics on what they would cover in the Champions League. That's you know very well documented at this point. I've seen MLS teams surpass that, mm. and the numbers that you saw in those champion leagues games from Dortmund included the goalkeeper. I've seen teams in MLS surpass that excluding the goalkeeper. So there is a lot of physical capability and capacity in in MLS, but that's not what I think people see when they, when they talk about the Premier League being more intense than any other league in the world. And I'll, I'll make this conversation exclusive to the MLS Premier League comparison because that's the only one I can really tangibly, uh, you know, give you information about. <clears throat> and I, what I'd say is the difference between those two is because everything just means so much more still in the Premier League. 
each game just carries so much more weight. And I think that's probably one of the bigger reasons why um, you can feel it through the television or you can feel it in the stands. That would be my definition of the difference in the intensity between the two leagues, not just the, not just what's being done physically on the field, because the argument wouldn't hold water. Uh, you know, I've seen on both continents, you know, you wouldn't be able to convince me that Premier League teams run more than MLS teams because I, I have information to the contrary. But intensity and overall tension, we haven't been able to produce that yet in the United States because there's too many variables that don't exist yet. Okay, I've got a, an interesting theory on your American players and, and MLS players in terms yeah. of their physical capabilities and, and compared to the technical capabilities, and I'll, I'll touch on that in a little bit later. But mm-hmm. two, two of the, uh, the finer exports from the MLS to, to the Premier League, two of which played for, for Everton, of course, um, in goal for many years, Tim Howard, and of course, for two long stints. Um, DRS men's national team joint top goal scorer in London Donovan. Um, mm-hmm. Did those guys, um, obviously, when those guys, I think Tim was already there when you joined. Yeah. Um, obviously, Tim were there, and then Landon obviously come over on long, on two separate occasions. Did those guys sort of help you settle, or did you help Landon settle when he come in? And have you got any interesting stories about you and the guys? I mean, Tim definitely helped me settle because he was uh, he was already there, and and by the time Landon came in January, I was feeling pretty settled, and, and I tried my best to help Landon acclimate. But really, it's the players that helped Landon acclimate. We had an an amazing locker room. the 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 group of guys were uh, fantastic, and you know you can get this information directly from Landon. I mean, the the way in which those guys <clears throat> brought him into the fold, not just Landon. They did this, they did this on player after player. They, they policed that locker room really, really well. And they, they brought justice when it needed to be brought. You know, that, that's the way I can sum them up. But they're, they're, uh, they, they knew it was their role to get, to get players as comfortable as possible, as quickly as possible. And they did a phenomenal job of that. You know, I think for my, my <laughs> Tim was great for me just because you know, the, it was a very, very different world for me. And he was able to translate a lot of what I was seeing and having difficulty with. And he could translate it really, really quickly so that I could understand maybe culturally uh, why a behavior was taking place. Uh, or he could give me background on the player which allowed me to handle the player in a much more sensitive way. But for the most part, you know, he, he, he was among others. It wasn't just him. Uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that now, Max. I mean, Leon Osman mm. was a fantastic guy in terms of settling me down. Leighton Baines, fantastic. Phil Jagielka, fantastic. Phil Neville. They all, they all seem to have this, this, um, it was almost like they made it their responsibility to give people information about what the club was. Almost like they knew it was their job. Uh, and then other staff members, Jimmy Comer, uh, one, of the massage, one of the massage therapists at the club, did the same thing for me. Jimmy Martin, you know, Kate, he, was, he's the, he is the heartbeat of that club, always has been, at least while I was there. Mm. And that, 
you know, you, uh, Jimmy Martin was like my dad. He made sure that if I was doing anything wrong, I was punished for it as quickly as, <laughs> as, quickly as possible. And the, you know, the, the only, the, the one thing I remember that stood out was, uh, you know, on when you, uh, when you go on your first preseason trip as a staff member, you're required to sing a song at some point during the preseason. And we were in Canada at the time. And I forget where, I think we had just finished a game against River Plate in Edmonton. And we were having dinner and Tim Cahill came to me and said, are you all right to sing tonight? And of course your answer is going to be yes. It took me completely by surprise. (laughs) I had the most wonderful steak in front of me. I didn't eat a bite of it because my stomach started turning immediately. And you have to pick a song and you got to sing. And uh, (laughs) so I, I, I'm not afraid of, of being in front of people. So I didn't, it wasn't a too big of a deal, but you're still going to be singing in front of people you don't know. So I chose Stevie Wonder song. I was going to sing Superstition. And I got, I got up in front of the group. And uh, before I got up, Tim goes, Hey guys, I just want you to know, Steve said he's going to steal the show, which I never said, (laughs) but then it gets the whole group a little bit more amped. And now they're just giving me a little bit more shtick than they would have if Tim hadn't made the comment and it got the, it got the room a little bit lively. And then I, you know, I sang my piece and, uh, and I got through it. I was happy with it. The room was happy with it. And then later, you know, as I was walking by, you know, Tim offered a little fist bump and it was within the first two weeks of me being with the team, but he did, he did that for a reason. Even if I bombed Max, even if I was absolutely terrible, it didn't matter at that point. You know, what Tim did by saying that to the group, he knew that whether it was because they accidentally, either whether they hammered me because I was terrible or whether they applauded me because I was fantastic, he knew what he said at that moment was going to help me acclimate to the group. And it did. You know, and you go through those processes on preseason together. And usually there's a lot of bonding that takes place on those preseason trips. And he was, he was, he did that on several occasions, you know, when it came to uh, trying to implement new ideas at the club, he was always a supporter. And uh, he knew that he knew that he, if he led by example, that it would make my job a lot easier. And he always did that. So, and I was, um, I was always super appreciative of that. Excellent. Uh, great song choice, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, as you're saying that, that group of players just had a, an absolutely tremendous chemistry and team spirit. Um, You've fast forward now to 2013. Obviously, uh, Manchester United come calling for David Moyes mm-hmm. and Roberto Martinez as a appointed Everton manager. Um, to your credit, a turnover of staff occurs and you maintain your position, which right. I think is entirely to your credit. Um, any thoughts and feelings towards that moment of uh, Roberto Martinez coming in and the departure of David Moyes? Because I know they're very much too. Uh, different playing ideologies. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of feelings here, good and bad, Max. To be honest, you know the the. I remember during that summer, I was back in the United States, and you know, I wasn't the senior member of staff in that area, so I, I was I was comfortable with the fact that my time at Everton might come to an end. You know, who who knows when change, coaching changeovers take place like that? And I had. I had known of Richard Evans who worked with 
with uh, Roberto for a very long time. I had never met him personally, but I knew of him. And, you know, I knew the role he was going to be taking. You know, there could be, there could be no need for me anymore. And <clears throat> gradually, you know, I just, uh, you know, started to hear more information as we worked our way through the summer. And then I got a call that I was staying. And obviously I was, I was ecstatic, but it also meant that, you know, Dave Bills was, was leaving. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the, the transition that took place afterwards, Max, was something that I still look back on because it's a sad time for me. You know, the, there's a lot of people that left uh, that were close to us, um, either because they left with David Moyes or because they were let go. And, and Dave Billows was one of them. And the unfortunate part of the whole process, Max, is that, you know, Dave and I still aren't on speaking terms. And that's a very, it's a disappointing process in this. And, you know, Dave was a very close friend of mine while we were there. And through what still continues to be uh, miscommunication between both sides, you know, Dave still feels strongly that I was a part of the reason why he was let go. And, you know, it's 100% not the case. But within the confusion and frustration and emotions of something like that, especially, he was there for more than a decade, man. You know, he was at the club for a really long time for the transition to happen the way it did um, was a, was a tough blow for everybody. Uh, but in the position that I was in, I just feel like there were, you know, there's mistakes that I made as well in the whole process of transition max, but for it to be interpreted the way it was interpreted and to lose somebody like him, the way I lost him, not just as a practitioner within the club, but now as a friend, you know, it, it was a difficult process. It still is. And, mm -hmm. My my hope is that you know we can continue to to chip away at this process and uh, and continue to be on speaking terms again. But you know he was a he was a great guy to work with day in day out. You know, he really did provide so much for me as an individual, both as a friend, as a you know, and as a work colleague. You know we we really did for four years have a very solid uh, process in place the way we operated together. And I think, and I pray that, you know, as this unfolds, that we'll have more and more opportunities to speak together and communicate what it was that really took place and take ownership of the things we did wrong and, and, uh, and then hopefully, you know, move on in, in, a, in a way where we continue to have a relationship like we did in the past. So that's, that's a big regret, man. You know, it was a tough time for, for me because, you know, I'm, I want to be, I want to be happy for my family because, you know, we're anytime you think there's a chance you're going to lose your job and you don't, <clears throat> there's a bit of satisfaction and enjoyment for the fact that, you know, you can breathe easy and, uh, you know, that part of your worry and concern is gone. It's in the past. You want to try to focus your attention on this new era within the club. Uh, you know, obviously I say that, uh, because of the, you know, because of the amount of success David Moyes had and the impact that he had on the club. You know, it was really a, a, a very new page, uh, you know, that the club was entering into. And you want to be excited about it. And you, you have these feelings of newness and excitement. While at the same time, you know, you're juggling these feelings of, of regret and disappointment. Uh, because people that you care about have moved on. And in this particular case, not only moved on, but, uh, you know, there's some scars left behind because of it. 
and it was difficult. That first two or three months was was pretty hard, uh, you know. And then you just, as football is, you have to pay attention and you have to move on. And and you know, we were we were in a position where we were forced to do that. And and collectively, we you know we now had to have a new process. And uh, as a department, we were working a little bit differently. And and you just you just have to get on. We did, but it was it was a tough period where you're trying to build the joy of of, you know, uh, of remaining at a club that you care about and remaining in a position where you can stay in England at a, at a, you know, at one of the best leagues in the world while, you know, while trying to pay homage to the disappointment that had taken place and be respectful to the people that have moved on. Mm, of course, and fingers crossed, things between yourself and Dave can be resolved at, at some point in time. But as you say... Yeah, for sure. I appreciate is, that. It is just... It's part of the industry that you're part of, isn't it? It's part of the sport as a whole, I suppose. Yeah, unfortunately, part, unfortunately. Part, part of the backroom staff. Now, right. as, you, as you rightly said, the, that summer, that 2013, 2014, was, you know, yeah. a new era for the club. Um, I don't know if you know this, around the December time, as part of my high school work experience, I got to work with Jimmy Martin in the uh, in the kit room. So, I Oh, got, did you really? Yeah, yeah, in December. Um uh, uh, just as, a, as an Evertonian, it was so eye-opening just to see, you know, all, all, all the operations of the club. It was absolutely fantastic. And it was, I couldn't have picked a better time because it was between, I think it was the week we just, obviously, we beat Man United 1-0 at Old Trafford. Right, right, right. In a very long time. And, right. then, and then we went and got a good draw against Arsenal at the Emirates, who we were, you know, who were our main competitor for the European yeah. places at yeah. that time. And uh, as, you, as you rightly said, David Moyes built a tremendous team spirit and a, a tremendous squad. It seems yeah. like Roberto Martin has sort of piggybacked off the back of that identity. And, you know, as I say, around that time, at the atmosphere at the, the Finch Farm was, was sky high. And I was curious, obviously, December being December in football. Right. It's when injuries are at an all-time high, when you mm-hmm. know, fit, fitness is in doubt. While the atmosphere is so good, what's that like for yourself and your department? It's not easy, man, because the that period we we know what's coming the fixture the fixture congestion um is is insane and you you try to you try to be predictive in your analysis of that period and uh you try to communicate what will be a necessity in the end you have to try your best to rotate the squad and utilize the depth that you have and try to continue to get results that's not always possible, you know, and I think you, especially coming off of, you know, some of the most memorable games that I've had at the club were right in that period that you're describing, but collectively, um, you know, not just thinking about 13, 14, but thinking of my whole time at Everton, that particular, that particular period was always a challenge. Um, I think the, the difference between, uh, this that particular group of players and any other group was I, they never complained, Max. They didn't, man. You know, mm-hmm. whether it was uh, the fixture congestion that the Premier League puts on us, uh, whether it was the way in which we always seem to have to travel on Christmas. There, you know, and, and and Liverpool never did. It was always us traveling on Christmas, always us traveling New Year's Eve. And it wasn't just traveling. We always went to the Northeast. I can't tell you how many times during that period, whether it was Christmas or whether it was uh, New Year's Eve, 
we always were in the Northeast. Mm, it was New, either Newcastle, Newcastle or yeah. Sunderland, or we were always in the Northeast. <laughs> and for us, they never complained, Max. They just got on with it. And mm. we did have good results during that period, more often than not during those toughest turnarounds. And I, it's a testament to the group, for sure, because that, they, that group of players just, one, they enjoyed playing. They enjoyed playing with each other. And overall, they, every opportunity, they just embraced it. But there, that wasn't a group of complainers. And that was the biggest takeaway for any success that we had during that period it has to be given to the players because they just got on with it. I think there was great leadership, both from people with the armband and people without the armband. And there was always a, a spine uh, of players that, could, that you could attach yourself to if you were feeling a little low on energy, there was always somebody that could, that could pull you forward. If you were, you know, feeling emotional, if you were feeling like you just couldn't get yourself up for a game, you know, there was somebody that could, that could take care of you in that moment and get you to a place where you could perform because they, they just understood each other really, really well. But those periods were difficult for sports scientists because well, it's, the, it's, it's where the need to have, to have results meets the reality that, you know, human physiology can't be beat. You know, Mother Nature's unfit. So at what point do you, how do you balance the need for results and, and the inevitable nature of, the, of, the, of human physiology? It's, you know, it's, it's difficult. And, the, and at that point, you always have, you always have conflict. Um, it, it, it's a part of the game. Conflict mm -hmm. is a natural part of the relationship between sports scientists and head coaches. I'm, I've, I'm convinced of that. I think it's healthy. I don't think it's a problem. Uh, as long as it's dealt with in the right way, in an emotionally intelligent way, it can be very, very productive. I think it's a necessity. And in those periods, it's tested. It's definitely tested to the max. But it, it's a part of the role, I think, in, in general, not just in the Premier League, but anywhere in the world when there's fixture congestion and, and we're starting to, to look at the reality of how to, of how to you know, um, maneuver our way through periods like that you're going to end up having to have conversations that are uncomfortable but that's mm. a natural part of it yeah um you paid testament to the to that group of players and it was that certainly yeah. since i've done a lot most definitely the best squad that everton have had <clears> by <throat> far and roberto <clears throat> brought romelu in of course who's right. stronger than ox and quick Gerard <coughs> de la Feu, really mm -hmm. quick so just to, I thought it'd be interesting to find these out from you. Just um, who was the strongest of the group? Who was the quickest of the group? And who had the best cardiovascular endurance? Yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, man. That's the, I mean, strongest for sure. Sylvain Distin was the strongest yeah. guy on the team. That He was a beast. Still is a beast. Mm. Uh, just pure strength. I don't think anybody would argue. Um, even at, you know, when, when I, when he came to the club, he was still performing at such a high level. By the time I was leaving the club, he was getting up in age, but you still couldn't beat him for pace. And if you could beat him for pace, he would just put that big arm out there like a clothesline <laughs> and you just couldn't get past it. You know, uh, I really enjoyed my time with Sylvan. He is one of my favorite players that I've ever worked with. Um, and he was, he was incredible. Just a, he was a joy to work with. So I'd say for sure he, he was the strongest guy I'd ever seen. Um, 
man, we had some cardiovascular fit guys. Mm. That's a tough one. That's a tough one to rate. Um, Leon was an aerobic animal. Um, Steven Pienaar was an aerobic animal. Leighton Baines was an aerobic animal. We had very aerobically fit players. <clears throat> the mo- that's a tough one to answer. Most aerobically fit is a tie. I think there's several guys that could fall into that category uh, for sure. Uh, quickest in all of our testing, and I'll make this very, very sports science and boring. Uh, Leighton Baines was the most agile guy we had on the team based on the numbers. <clears throat> that probably, this is probably the easiest way to describe this. Um, Dario Lafayette was the fastest guy I'd ever seen in my life <laughs> with the ball, without the ball. He, he was explosive as far as that group of players that we had. Um, he was incredibly quick. Uh, and we had some athletes. We had some great athletes on the team. But strongest, I'd say, Sylvan. Um, man, aerobic capacity, that's a tough one. Leon's got to be in that category. Um, Leon, Steven, Leighton. And then Leighton was obviously the quickest player we had, just based on the numbers. Excellent. That's interesting to find out. Yeah. Now, um, just to sort of finish off on, on your time at Everton, um, <clears throat> I'm sure, I remember after you left, I'm sure we sort of spiked in terms of soft tissue injuries and, and things like that. But um, just that overall reflecting and looking back on it, how, how did you find your, your time at Everton, the, the city of Liverpool, the people? Uh, have you got any particular favourite memories? Well, my favorite, hands down, is that my daughter was born in Liverpool. Um, so there, there's no, there's no way for us to get around the fact that it will be a, a pivotal part of our life forever. Um, <clears throat> I don't think I've been, I've lived in a lot of different cities, and there is not a single city that's impacted us more than our time in Liverpool. You know, <clears throat> the friends we made, the way it changed our outlook on what's important to us uh, was just not one that was a process of just being in England in general, but also heavily influenced by, by the city of Liverpool. Um, the, the memories we have there, we can't seem to get away from repeating them almost every day. We're, we're constantly, something happened in our life in that five year period that we were there. It, it pops up in a story. It'll pop up in a joke. It'll pop up in a song, <clears throat> you know, no matter what we do, Every time I look in my daughter's face, uh, you know, I'll, I'll see the city. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the nature of it. I have videos of her when she was younger. And, you know, she, she had the most amazing accent just from being an American kid born in Liverpool. You know? uh-huh. And uh, that, that, that'll, be the, that'll be the most impactful memory in, in something that just based on looking at her every day, I'll remember the city every day. And I, I really do. She appreciates it as well. She says that to her friends all the time. I was born in Liverpool. She's very proud of it. Oh, but that, that, that'll be the, the most impactful memory. But our time there, um, you know, was unprecedented in terms of where we were at as a young couple. You know, we, we hadn't been married long. You know, we got to experience a really cool adventure um, and, and see a completely different area of the world and take in a different culture at a time when it really was going to have a powerful impact on us as young kids, you know, as young people. And, you know, that was, that was a very cool part of the, of the city. And then, you know, what, 
what changes and makes any experience fantastic is people. That, that's, that's it. It's the human interaction that does it. And the people that I personally met through my time working at the club, um, you, I, can't, I can't even describe how unique each and every single one of those individuals was. Um, to, to have the opportunity to, to be with them day in, day out, and, uh, and just enjoy that human interaction is something that I miss a lot. They were such a unique culture of people. Um, the people of Liverpool are, are really genuine. They're fantastic, loving people. And the club, the people at the club are no different. Um, I, I still, whether it be through text message or WhatsApp or phone calls, whatever it might be, I'm connected to people from the club, you know, daily. Uh, and that's just the nature of, of how connected we can be to people now through technology. But, the, you know, I, I, I'll never forget. Uh, I'll never forget the time there or the people that we met there because um, because that was the most impe- impactful part of it. And then, the you know, the players were the players gave me some of the coolest memories uh, I'll ever have. Um, you know, you you talked about Old Trafford. There's more than one memory at Old Trafford. You know, we've got, you know, the 4-4 draw at Old Trafford was an amazing game. And I got to sit back and the players just gave us a gift. You know, they gave us a wonderful gift to be able to see that and experience it. And then Brian Oviedo scoring in, in the latter stages of that particular match and winning at Old Trafford was fantastic. And I remember the 2-2 draw at home to Tottenham it was an amazing game. Seamus Coleman becomes a household name in that game. And that was a wonderful experience. Uh, I, I got to go to Wembley which was fantastic during our time there. It didn't turn out the way we wanted it to, but mm. not many sports scientists get a chance to say that they were, they were able to see that environment and be a part of that environment. Um, and, and I really enjoyed it. I saw some amazing cities uh, in the Europa League. We got, to, we got to travel and see some places I would never see if I, didn't, if I, if I wasn't in that environment. Um, and those are memories that you take with you. And, but, uh, you know, the, it's – the thing I'll cherish most is, is being able to still continue to be in touch with the people that I met there. So they were, it was an amazing club and some amazing people. Great. It's, it's fantastic that you've got such fond memories. And mm-hmm. I'm, sure, I'm sure the people at the club have got the same about you. Yeah, uh, the fans were fantastic, Max. They, that was um, unbelievable. You know, the, the, the way they supported the club was unreal. And they knew everybody. Mm-hmm. They knew everyone all the way down to the kit man. You know, I would walk down the street and people, people would pick me out of a crowd. And not that I care, not that I think, you know, a sports scientist should be somebody that is recognized, but that's my point. Mm-hmm. We're so behind the scenes. We're rarely, we're rarely really public eye, right? But Evertonians know exactly who you are because they care so much about the club. They've got, they've got this finger on the pulse because it's their life. And the way they, the way they support. Hey, listen, it's not just us going to Newcastle on New Year's Eve. The the supporters and would be packed. You know, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day in the Northeast, freezing cold. It didn't matter, and it, it was. They were incredible, man. And that was again, like I said, it's a big part of the reason why we have such intensity in the games. But they, they were something special. There, there. You know, I'd been to a lot of grounds and. Hands down, there was a, a unique, there was something very different about our, our, 
our supporters for sure. Definitely. Uh, I'd second that. Do you still keep your eye on results as of late? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. What a what a transition the club has gone through since, huh? It's been it's been interesting to watch from afar, but uh, I'm you know you you have to be excited about a manager like Carlo Ancelotti. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing how this transitions over the next few years. But um, it's been exciting, man. You know, it's ups and downs and I'm getting, I'm, I'm starting to get a feeling of what it's like to be a supporter now, you know, you know, your heart races and then you're screaming at the television and then you're excited. And then mm. <laughs> so I'm starting to feel all the emotions from a different perspective now. Yeah. Life is an episode and there's been a few ups and downs, but as you said, yeah, just a couple. Love, you know. Carl yeah. and Chelsea, we should be okay. Just just to end now, Stephen, it's been fantastic to talk to you. I'd be curious just to ask about your time now with the US men's national team. Mm-hmm. Now, 2026, obviously North America are hosting a World Cup. Yeah. So yeah. A six-year window now to mm-hmm. try and, you know, achieve peak performance. And I'll hit you with my, my theory about American players and MLS players now. And okay. I've found, because, for example, um, the last dance, which is out, like, like just come out recently about um, the Bulls and, and Jordan, something that I've found just mm-hmm. in general about the uh, just the American athlete in terms of physically in the physicality. So you know, speed, power, strength—they're just second to none. And as you say, I think that's testament to their uh, strength and condition that's been, been prevalent from the seventies onwards. But in terms of technically, they've always just seemed to be a step behind from the Europeans. Mm-hmm. But now. I feel like you've got a group of players within the U.S. men's national team. So you look at Tyler Adams, Weston McKenney, Pulisic, you know, Anthony Robertson as well, of course, who's obviously come through Everton. Um, mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot of those lads have uh, jumped and gone to, to Europe, in, in particular Germany first. So mm-hmm. I was just wondering what your, um, just what your aims and ambitions are within this six-year period with those group of players. Yeah, you know, there it's it's it would be very easy to to look at this period and and get and get very get ahead of ourselves in terms of what the overall mission is. Uh, what I'd say to that is, Greg Berhalter's done a great job of painting the picture of what's really important in this period. Our mission as the U.S. Men's National Team is to change the way the world views American soccer. And if you think of that as a mission and you really attach yourself to the motivations that come with it, it becomes even bigger than winning a World Cup. I think there is an opportunity within the United States to, to do something great, man. I've seen it now firsthand as you start to really dive into how how interesting our player pool is getting. And I think it, it, would, it would actually derail us to think of 2026 as this, you know, this pivotal moment where all our success or failures is going to come down to one tournament. I don't think that's the case. I think that's really short-sighted. Instead, it's a much bigger goal it's a goal that actually accentuates a bit of the chip on our shoulder. I think it looks at it from a perspective of respect that the players deserve, that they're not getting. 
And that's why I like the mission. I would much rather change the way the world views American soccer at this point in our development as a group, as we continue to, to mold the identity that we started molding in 2019. That process to me is the one that I'm most excited about. I can get more motivated. I, I, I can harness more energy from the thought of changing the way the world views us than thinking about what it's going to take over the next six years to win a World Cup. Overall, the process that we're seeing from the whole group is really exciting. You know, we've got not just the players you mentioned, but we've got some young players that are starting to do some really cool things. You know, Giovanni Reina mm-hmm. at Dortmund is really starting to mature as a player. But we've also had players in camp that not a lot of people have heard of. Ulysses Giannis is a kid that's at Wolfsburg right now who in the last, you know, six months has gone from unheard of under 19 to signing a professional contract with Wolfsburg. We had him in camp in January. And we could see talent right away, but he's a young, young kid. You know, I think overall there's a, a process taking place that is starting to move us in a direction where when you focus on our mission and then you view what's happening in U.S. soccer through the lenses of that mission, you can start to get really, really excited. And right now, that's what I see. You know, you've got, I could give you a list of young players that we've seen so far that most people haven't heard of, and they're going to be very good players. If we continue to support them the right way, if their path, career path, lands them at the right club with the right head coach, with the right people, so that that maturation continues. Mm-hmm. You know, this we're really dealing with an opportunity to meet our mission. And that's all we care about, man. As a group, staff and players, we're galvanized around one mission. And it's not to win the World Cup. Like I said, I think it's short-sighted. I think instead it's about, you know, putting, putting those players in a position to make a statement globally. And I think that's, that's, where, we're, that's where our head's at. It's that one mission of changing the way the world views us. Excellent. Uh, I wish you the very best of luck with the, with the project. And as someone who has a, a keen interest in US soccer, and I hope to work in it one day. So mm. um, as I say, I wish you the, all the best. And again, thank you very much for your time. It's been a, an absolute pleasure to talk, Steve. I appreciate it, Max. Take care, man. And if you Thanks. see anybody that you know I know, you let them know that I miss them, and you let them know I'm wishing them the best. Will do.